Now, can we read two portions from 1 Corinthians, please? The first one's in chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And we'll start at verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Now chapter 15, please. And verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. After destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. We've uh, recently had a great joy. It's been our privilege in the assembly in Birmingham to receive transfers from this district and from others of young people who have moved into the West Midlands for studies or for employment. And it's a, it's a great thing for us anyway to receive young people into fellowship with us in the church and to share with them and to see them engaging in the activities of the assembly, to see them engaging with the saints to see them handling the scriptures with us. And I hope they're joining a church, they've joined a church which is united in love and in fellowship together and a church which is eager and desiring to serve God according to the truth that he's revealed to us. And I'm sure you'll pray for them and you'll pray for us. You know, university is a time when it's maybe a make or break time for some people. 
It's a time when, in my experience at least, you had an awful lot of free time. Didn't have much else to do. So you'd spend time in the Word. You'd spend time with other believers. A time when you could really grow and develop. But you've flown the nest and you could develop in Christian things. But it's a time when there's a lot of temptation around too. A time when perhaps the things that you've been used to that have kept you in check have gone and you're left on to your own devices. So it can break people too. And I ask you that you pray for those who have come amongst us from this district and, and pray for us too, that we might be enabled to see them grow and develop in their service for the Lord. It would be tragic, wouldn't it, if those people, young people being transferred to the Church in God, of, God, of God in Birmingham, when they arrived on the first Sunday morning to, to, for the letter of transfer to be read, it would be a tragedy if the guy on the door said to them, well, it's, it's lovely to see you, and now that you're coming in amongst us, um, who do you want to sit with? Because on that side of the hall, they're the, they're the, people, who, they're the people who belong to Phil Jefferson. And if, you, if you're on that side of the hall, well... They're, they're Stephen Hickling's men. And if you're sitting at the back over there, well, they belong to Christ. So you, you choose who you want to sit with. Because that was the issue that Paul is addressing in these first chapters of the epistle to Corinth. That there were those in the church, they'd split off into factions and into divisions. And there were those who said, well, do you know, I follow Apollos. And there were those who said, well, I'm Paul's man. And there were those who said... Well, I, Cephas, really, I'm, I belong to Cephas. And there were those at the back, in my imagination at least, left at the back who said, well, I follow Christ. And Paul's addressing that because in that they were following the wisdom of this world. And in those first three chapters of his first epistle to Corinth, he's addressing in a really devastating treatise the the. the division between the wisdom of this age, the wisdom of this world, and the wisdom of God. And these two things are diametrically opposed. The wisdom of this age, the wisdom of this world, it speaks about itself. It acknowledges the value of men, of the things that men bring, of the things that men have. But the world by its wisdom didn't know God. And when the Son of God came amongst us, didn't recognise him. The world in its wisdom went on its own way, oblivious to the purposes, oblivious to the person of God. And it went on its way to destruction. And Paul says, you follow the wisdom of this world. That's where you're going. The wisdom of God. It's folly to the people out there. It's weakness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Christ, the wisdom and the power of God. And the wisdom of this world leads to emptiness and loss. And the wisdom of God, it's folly out there, but it leads to salvation. It leads to your eternal gain. And when you say, I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Paul, you're embracing the wisdom of this world. It's this age which aligns itself to men and says, I belong to that man. It's the wisdom of God which says all things are yours.
It's a really remarkable verse at the end, I think, of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. You don't need to say, I belong to him. He's yours. He's a servant of God through whom you believed, as the Lord allotted to each. Every one of them, they're yours. They belong to you. You don't need to say, I belong to him. That's the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of God is they belong to you. They're yours. But Paul, as he does, in his remarkable way, he lifts this whole lesson for them. He lifts it out of the petty squabbles and the factions and the divisions of Corinth, of those who said that they belonged to different people. He lifts it out of that into something far greater. He says, all things are yours. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, they're all yours. I'll tell you what else is yours. The world and life and death and things present and things future. They're yours because you're Christ's and Christ is God's. And we live in a world which to us, as we look out to it, is fractured, is divided, is dangerous. We have struggles in life when we can't see what the future holds for us. Death lurks around the corner, whether in the frailty of our own health or age, or or whether it's the death of ones whom we love and we lose. How is it that these things are ours? What influence do we have? What control do we have over these things which Paul says are ours and yet to us are so far outside our control? far outside our realm of influence. I can't do anything about the world and you're telling me it's mine. Well, I think the answer comes at the end. To find the answer, we have to go to the end of the verse and work backwards. These things are yours because Christ is God's. Uh, In John's Gospel, he begins, as you know, that opening chapter with... A meditation on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, of who he is as the Son of God. Before he goes on to tell us about what the Lord Jesus did, about what he accomplished in his life, in his death, in his resurrection from the dead. Before he tells us what he did, he tells us who he is. And it seems to me that the phrase which resounds from that opening chapter of John is this. He comes back to it, he he refers to it and he comes back to it, and he comes back to it again in chapter 3. When I want to tell you who he is, this is who he is. He's the only begotten from the Father. There were three times in the ministry of the Lord Jesus that we know that he came before or they came before him an only child and it's Luke who records all three incidents Luke who seems has a particular interest in the human condition in where people were in what their circumstances of life were and three times he records that the Lord Jesus had brought to him an only child and they're in consecutive chapters the first is chapter 7 And you remember he's there at the head of the crowd and he's walking towards the town of Nain. 
And out from the town, out through the gate, comes another crowd, and at its head, a funeral procession. And these two crowds meet at the gate of the town. Leading the one is the Prince of Life, and leading the other is a woman who is grieving for her only son. And she was a widow, and her only son is lying on the bier, carried by the men of the town. And these two crowds meet, and the Lord, it says, saw her and had compassion on her. And he touched the bier, and you know that the boy, the man, I don't know how old he was, but he arose. And it says he gave him back to his mother. And then he come to chapter 8. And he's back in Galilee now. And the crowd are with him again. And out from between the, the people, there's, there's coming a man. And he is striving. He's pushing. He's coming because he wants to meet the Lord Jesus. And his name's Jairus. And he's a respected man. A man, I guess, for whom... There may have been some shame, I don't know. The ruler of the synagogue, and he's coming to meet a man who's been thrown out of the synagogue. But he casts himself before the Lord and he begs him to come back to his house because he has an only daughter and she's dying. And the Lord makes his way with Jairus and healing the woman with the issue of blood on the way, he comes to the house. And everyone else is kept outside, but the parents and Peter and James and John, and they go inside. And you remember, there's the only daughter lying on the bed. And when he says she's sleeping, they laugh at him. Who laughed at him? The parents? Peter? James? John? Did they laugh? There's nobody else in the room. They laughed at him. And he spoke to her. And his voice raised the dead. And he gave her back to her parents. And then you come into the next chapter and it's chapter 9. And he's in a crowd again. And there's a man who's coming, pushing his way through the crowd. And he's coming to speak to the Lord about his son. And he says, I'm begging you. He says, I beg you. Because his son is possessed by an evil spirit. Which convulses him, which casts him down. Which puts him into fits. And he says, I'm begging you because he's my only son. And he wasn't dead, but the man had lost him. Not lost him to death, but lost him to the possession of a spirit. And he says, I, I begged your disciples and they couldn't heal him. And the Lord calls for the boy to come forward. And as he comes forward, he's thrown onto the ground. And the Lord rebukes the spirit. And it leaves him. And he gives him back to his father. Three people. Two men and a woman who came before the Lord, seeking his help because they'd lost their only child. They'd lost their only begotten. They'd lost the one who was the most precious and the most valuable thing in the world to them. They'd lost the one who was irreplaceable. They'd lost the one who was unique to them. And there were three so different people. One of them, a woman living in a town, one of them a ruler of the synagogue. One of them, it says, in, it calls him in chapter 9, just a man of the crowd. Three totally different people, three people in totally different circumstances, but they're leveled in this, that they've lost the thing that was most valuable to them in all the world, 
and they're leveled in this too. That to seek to regain it, they come before the one whom God calls my only begotten, my only son. And he was unique. And I think that sense of the, the, the way in which he was unique is brought forward by John in chapter 1 of his gospel. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we, beca- we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I think what John's saying is he's the only begotten. There's no one like him. He's unique. He's, he's the one who carries in himself the essence and the nature of deity. He's the one who has come forth from the Father and his glory and the truth of the Father are in him. And there's no one like him at all. He's completely unique. And he's not only unique, but he's the most valuable thing. He's the most dearly beloved thing of his Father. And you get that in verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. But the only begotten Son, or as many manuscripts have it, but God, only begotten, which is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. If you're reading a modern version like mine, it doesn't say in the bosom of the Father. I guess it's trying to jazz it up a bit, make it a bit more modern, you know. It says at the Father's side. That isn't the thought. It's not at the Father's side. He was in the bosom of the Father. That was something that the Jews understood. To them, the the bosom was the place of, it's the the place of the heart. It means an enclosed place. It means a safe place. It means a place where you would keep the thing most valuable, the thing which is most precious to you. You hold it in the bosom. Do you remember when Nathan came to David in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and he's come to rebuke him? about his behaviour with Uriah and Bathsheba. And he comes and he brings the parable of the rich man who's got, he's got hills and hills, fields and fields, they're covered in flocks. And there's a poor man. And he's just got one little ewe lamb that he bought. And he's brought it up with his children. And he's fed it from the table. And he carries it. And he nurtures it in his bosom. The most precious thing in the world to him And he holds it in his bosom. And that's the picture of the Lord. When he will come in a future day. Come to a redeemed Israel. And Isaiah tells us about it. That he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He'll gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom. And gently lead those that are with young. The only begotten. God, the only begotten, which is in the bosom of the Father. Unique and precious to God. Uniquely precious to God. The only begotten Son. Irreplaceable. There's none like Him. The most valuable thing in all eternity to God. The one who in in an eternal day said of Him, You're my Son. This day have I begotten you. And he sends him into the world. The three who came to him 
to seek him over their only children, they'd lost what was valuable to them. When God sent his only begotten son into the world, he gave. He didn't lose him. He gave him for you and me. And when you come to John chapter 3, the one that he's been talking about in chapter 1, the uniqueness, the preciousness of God, the only begotten. He, he's coming back into that, into that idea of, of the value, of the preciousness of Christ. And he says, God loved, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And that theme which fills his heart and his meditation in John chapters 1 to 3 is still his meditation when he's an old man and he's writing his first epistle. And you come to chapter 4 of his first epistle and he's, he's writing to his recipients, God is love. How do I explain that? How do I explain to you that God is love? Well, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only begotten into the world that we might live through him how do we measure the love of God how do we measure his willing mind to save that he had an only begotten son the one who was the most precious and irreplaceable one to him the one whom he'd loved who'd been his delight who'd filled his heart for all eternity and he saw the plight of those who rejected him and he gave the one from his bosom. And he gave them him for you and me. There's one other occasion that you read this word of only begotten. In the whole of the New Testament. It's in Hebrews chapter 11. It's speaking of Abraham in his trial of faith. When God told him to go to Moriah. And he speaks about there Abraham. The writer of the Hebrews. He speaks of Abraham and he's in the act of offering his only begotten son. It's the same word. When you go to Genesis chapter 22, and you read the account of that, the, the instruction which came from God to Abraham was this, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, even Isaac. And your only son, the word son isn't there, it's your only. The Hebrew word is your only. And it's translated elsewhere, your delight, your soul thing. Your, it means a soul thing, a united thing. It means your one thing. The thing that's everything to you, Abraham, you take it. You take him. And I want you to offer him on Moriah. Your son, your only. When you come to Psalm 22, and God's son, and God's only, is hanging on Calvary's tree. And we're reading about it through the prophecy of David, of the bulls of Bashan and the dogs who surround him at Calvary. And you read there in the prophetic word, the word which the Lord gave to his God and Father. He says, deliver my soul from the sword, my only, from the power of the dog. It's translated, I guess, in many versions, my soul or my life. It's my only. His life, his being, who he was, was being given. 
was being poured out in death. And he calls upon God, save me. I'm your only, your only one, your only begotten. But there was no ram in the thicket for him because he was the ram or the lamb of God who had come to bear away the sin of the world. So John speaks of him, speaks of his value, of his worth as the the only begotten son. And it isn't just John. God himself declared it on two occasions, as you know. You remember in Matthew chapter 3, when the Lord comes to the Jordan to be baptised by John in that baptism of repentance. And there's the crowd on the bank of the Jordan, and one by one they're coming out to John to be baptised by him. A baptism of repentance in which they would be turning away from their sin in preparation for the Messiah whom John was proclaiming. And one by one, John's baptising them until there's a man who's coming out, striding out into the water, and John knows who this is. And as he reaches the Baptist, John says, I can't, I can't baptise you. I need to be baptised by you, and you come to me. This was a baptism of repentance. How can I baptise the one who has nothing to repent of? And the answer that the Lord Jesus gives is that all righteousness might be fulfilled. He was coming to share in the plight of sinners, of sinful men and women who were coming out to John to be baptised by him in a baptism of repentance. That water, I believe, spoke of the grave, just as the water of your baptism spoke of the grave. It spoke of death. It spoke of people who were coming out to meet with John there, to die to sin, in repentance, to turn away from their sinful life and to die to sin. And here's one who's never committed any sin and he's coming out to be baptised by John in the Jordan, not to die to sin, but to demonstrate that he had come to die for sin. We had our study day in the Midlands a couple of weeks ago and John Archibald was with us. And he put this in a really powerful way to me. So I'm not going to claim that this was me that that said this. I, I give him the credit for it. But he said that when the Lord Jesus was baptized, he made his commitment to die. From that moment onwards, he was committed to die. And as he came up out of the water, there's a voice from heaven which recognizes that commitment. And he says, this is my son, my beloved in whom I am well pleased. And then you come to chapter 17. And this time he's not in the river, he's on the mountaintop with Peter and James and John again, and he's speaking with Moses and Elijah. And why is he speaking with them? Well, he's speaking with them because they were the representatives of the law and the prophets, and he had come to fulfill the law and the prophets. But I think there's another reason He's speaking to them because Luke tells us he was speaking about his exodus, his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And Moses and Elijah were two men who'd undergone an exodus too, a journey, a way out. Moses, for Moses, it was an exodus through the waters of the Red Sea, and it was an exodus to death. For Elijah, it was through the waters of the Jordan, and it was an exodus to life, to victory over death, as God carried him away 
in the whirlwind into heaven. And the Lord Jesus has got an exodus to go through. And he's speaking with these two men, representatives of all the scriptures who had gone before. And he's speaking to two men who have undergone their exodus. And he's speaking about his own, in which he's going to pass through the waters of death. In an exodus to death, but also a victory over death. When he too should be translated to heaven. To be a man in heaven who has triumphed over death through the work which he accomplished at Calvary. And he's speaking to them. And as he's speaking to them and sharing with them the scriptures about himself. About all that he was going to accomplish. The voice comes from heaven again. And this time it adds to what it said before. This is my son. My beloved. My chosen one in whom I am well pleased. And the one who had made his commitment to die when he was baptised by John in the Jordan became the chosen one as he was transfigured before the disciples and spoke with Moses and Elijah about his decease. Chosen. Committed and chosen. Chosen to die. Chosen for sacrifice. Chosen to go to Jerusalem and give his life a ransom for many. And you remember as he comes down from the mountain and they pass through Samaria, the Samaritans realised that his face was set to go to Jerusalem. Oh yes, because he's the chosen one of God. Chosen for sacrifice. And as he comes to Jerusalem, there's a voice that comes from heaven for a third time different this time you remember the Greeks sought to see Jesus sir we wish to see Jesus they said to Philip and the disciples came and they came and they said look there's, there's men here that want to speak to you and the Lord says to his disciples he says what shall I say father save me from this hour it was for this hour that I came father glorify your name he knew what that hour meant He knew what his entry into Jerusalem meant. It was fulfilling on the commitment he made in the Jordan. It was answering the election that God had made of him and declared on the mountain of transfiguration. He knew what that that hour meant. Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? No. Father, glorify your name. Fulfill that for which you've called and chosen me. And the voice comes from heaven, I will glorify it. I've glorified it and I will glorify it again. And his name was glorified when his only begotten, the Son of God, my Son, my beloved, my chosen one, was lifted up to die on Calvary's tree when he underwent the baptism which you and I will never undergo, the baptism of which his experience in the Jordan was a mere figure when he passed through the waters of judgment in an exodus into death that he might undergo an exodus out of death and victory over it. So when you and I, as we do today, speak about the Lord Jesus Christ and when you and I go into the presence of God as we'll do tomorrow in his will and we speak about the Lord Jesus Christ and we speak to him about the Lord Jesus Christ We're speaking to him about the one who is his eternal delight, about the one who fills his heart, 
about the one who is his only begotten, the one who's his only son, the one who's unique, irreplaceable, absolutely precious and glorious to him, who glorified his name again and again, and whom he sent from his bosom to be your saviour and mine, the only begotten, which is, not which was, but which is in the bosom of the Father. He has declared him. He's in the Father's bosom still. He loves him still. He delights in him still. And that puts a, a sense of privilege. Of course it does. And it puts into perspective what we're doing when we're coming before God and we're speaking to him about his son, the one whom he loves, the one whom he delights in, the one who is everything to him. And we're speaking to God about him. And that puts some perspective on what we're about, on what we're doing, and how we're to treat our entry into the holies. Now, what's all this got to do with all things are yours and 1 Corinthians 3? This is, this is one wild tangent. Well, we'll come back to that. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is speaking about the end of days. He's speaking about a day that's coming when this world, this tired creation, will be rolled up and done away with. And we're speaking about it, the transition of our own experience from time and into the eternal day. And we learn various things from that. We learn that there will be a resurrection of the dead. And each in its own order, Christ the firstfruits, who's already been raised. Then those who belong to Christ. And then everyone else. For as in Adam, all die. Now that's not just people who have been saved. Everyone dies in Adam. And so all who are made alive in Christ are not just those who are saved. It's all who are made alive. It's the living and the dead. It's those who have accepted him and are raised to meet with him as their saviour. But it's those two who have rejected him and are raised to meet him as their judge. All are raised to stand before the Lord of all. And each in his own order. And then he says, now he must reign until all things have been put in subjection to him. And every authority and every power has been destroyed under the authority of him who has received all authority of things in heaven and things on earth. This isn't just a matter that he shall reign, though that's true. That's not what he says. He says he must reign. This is the purpose of God, that all things will be put in subjection under his feet. Not only things physical, not only governments and rulers and authority, not only nations and kingdoms will know his authority, but spiritual things too, unseen things too. Because Paul tells us the last of these is death, which we learn from Revelation 20, is cast into the lake of fire at the judgment of the great white throne. All things are subjected to Christ and put in submission to him. 
And then comes the end, he says, when he delivers up the kingdom to his God and Father, and he subjects himself to the one who subjected all things to him, that as we move into the eternal day, God might be all in all. So at the consummation of the ages, all things are subjected to him. The writer to the Hebrews says, we don't see all things subjected to him. You remember he quotes from Psalm 8, speaking initially about Adam's glory, but it moves into the glory of Christ. And he says he's he's crowned with glory and honour, and all things are made subject to him. And the writer says, we don't see that at the moment. No, we don't see it, but it's true nevertheless. All authority has been given to me. This is a thing which has been accomplished. This is a thing which has been done. All things have been made subject to the one who died at Calvary. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. And this subjection of the all things to him is not a future thing, it's now. All things are subject to him. Though we don't see that yet, but we see Jesus crowned with glory and honour on account of the suffering of death. We see him who has been crowned with glory and honour and given all authority and all things have been made subject to him. And that's why when he comes, he must reign. That the manifestation of the all things being subject to him will be seen throughout the world. And every power and every authority and every dominion made subject and seen to be made subject to him who has received all authority and all dominion from his God and Father. So all things already belong to Christ. All things belong to him who belongs to God. And so when we come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we wonder what he means, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, I get that, that these men whom God had sent out amongst the churches, then as now, were servants of God through whom they believed. I understand that, but the world and life and death and things present and things future, are these yours? Are they mine? Oh yes, all things are yours because you are Christ's and Christ is God's. All things are yours, because all things are his, who belongs to God, who's his beloved, who's the one he delights in and has given all things into his hand. So the world is yours. When we look out and see a divided and a dangerous and a fractured place, when we see a world that threatens believers with condemnation, with persecution, when we see a world hostile and hateful to the Lord of all, it's yours because it's his. When life is a struggle to us, when we feel that we have to strive just to get to the end of the week, when we can't see what life holds in store for us, we can't see what's round the corner, we can't see light at the end of the tunnel, life is yours Because he who burst the bonds of death and was raised into life and through whom all creation, all mankind will be raised in a coming day, 
to stand before him, it's his. And death is yours. When we feel that death is close at hand, when we lose loved ones from this life and the grief that that brings, Paul is saying it's yours. It belongs to you because he's burst the bonds of it. He's defeated it. He's triumphant over it. He's the one who owns the present and the future because he's the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning and the end. And because these things are his, they're yours. Because he's the triumphant one. Because he's the majestic one. Because he's the one beloved by God into whose hands God has given all things. Because all things are his, the possessor of all things, they're yours. Because you're his. And in Romans chapter 10, as Paul is writing to those saints in Rome, he speaks about everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. He says there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For this same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. All things belong to him. All things are his. And he lavishes his riches on those who belong to him too. And if you wonder, as you look at this world and you're thinking about the events of the past week and the past months, and you wonder, where is it that my place of service is in this world? What have I got to offer? What can I give? How can I influence this world, this life? How can I speak to somebody or face up to the impending reality of death or whatever it might be when all these things seem far too great, too grand for us? What's my place? What's my influence? What's my position in all this? Well, friend, I'm telling you, your positions in this, they're yours. You're the possessor of all these things because you were bought with the price of the blood of him who possesses them all. You're loved by him who is loved by God and who lavishes his riches on all whom he loves. We're the recipients of the riches of the Lord of all because we belong to him who belongs to God and through whom very soon God will be all in all.